Luke, in his birth narrative of Jesus, focuses on Mary's role in that piece of sacred history. Matthew calls our attention to Joseph and his role. And in the first chapter of the gospel that bears his name, Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, but did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The title for my sermon last week, you will remember, was Hail Mary, Full of Grace. And as most of you knew, even before I explained it, those are the first words of a short prayer used by Christian people in other traditions, words that indicate at the very least that Mary, who was the biological mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy of the respect of all who claim him by faith. My title this week is Hail Joseph, Full of Grace, suggesting that he too deserves the study and the emulation of Christian people. Their roles were obviously not identical, but God prepared and called and used them together in the history of our redemption. I'd like to talk with you for a few moments this morning about a man who was widely and naturally believed in Nazareth to be the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church has decided to put on a Christmas program of epic proportions. A pavilion is being built on the church grounds. It will have wooden benches capable of seating several hundred people. Arrangements have been made to borrow animals from nearby farms. There will be sheep and goats, and cows and horses. The hogs were canceled after the pastor started reading the Old Testament law. Shoppers are already fanning out to the malls looking for material to purchase in order that appropriate costumes might be made. Something soft and pastel for Mary. Something glittering and white and shiny for the angels. Royal colors and textures for the wise men. Scratchy burlap for Joseph and the shepherds. And, of course, a yard or two of swaddling cloth for the baby. Sets are being designed with authenticity in mind. And a thin, nearly invisible high wire will be rigged along which the Star of the East will glide soundlessly from the telephone pole in the distance to a spot just over the roof of the stable, moving from east to west. Well, actually, it'll be from southeast to northwest 
because the telephone company wouldn't move that pole. Musicians are being sought, trumpets and fritch horns to herald the announcements of the herald angels, oriental sounding oboes and fritch horns to signal the arrival of the oriental wise men, and just to make the celebration as authentic as possible, a little drummer boy to round out the evening. Your role in all of this is to enlist members of the congregation to play the parts of the various characters in the drama. Several have responded to announcements made from the pulpit, and now you and your committee meet to match up people with the roles. One of the prettiest girls in the church, hopefully one with blonde hair and blue eyes, will be chosen to play the role of the Hebrew Mary. The grouchy old man who only comes to church on Mother's Day to please his wife. The one you might remember who played Ebenezer Scrooge in last year's more secular program will get to be the innkeeper. And the rowdy boys in Mrs. Olson's sixth grade Sunday school class will be the shepherds. Your problem is that one of the men who volunteered is mute. He's been unable to speak since that horrible accident involving a chicken, his bicycle, and an ATM machine. You probably remember this. It was in all the papers. You know of his sincere love for the Lord and his faithfulness to the church. And you're also pretty sure that he and his family would be deeply offended if he wasn't invited to play a part. But your challenge is, what do you do with a man who can't speak in a Christmas pageant? Obviously, he can't play a part of an angel, for they're the noisiest characters in the entire event. One of them speaks to Mary, another perhaps the same to Joseph, and then a whole bunch of them appear noisily to the shepherds in the sky. Someone suggests that he could be one of the wise men, but then another remembers that when they arrived in Jerusalem, they spoke. They demanded to know, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? One of the committee members wonders whether he might be assigned to a shepherd's part. But someone recalls that soon after the angel's visit, they talked excitedly among themselves. They said, probably loudly, let's go see this thing that the Lord has made known to us. The innkeeper comes to mind. But his role is too brief and too negative to match the visibility and the joy of this man who can't speak. And besides, that role is already taken. The committee is about to abandon all hope and begins to think of ways in which this man who is unable to speak might work behind the scenes, pulling that star along that wire, for example. When a late arrival to the meeting asks, how about Joseph? At first, the rest of the committee thinks that he's joking, but he's obviously very seriously, very serious about this. Bibles are thrown open, eager eyes begin to scan their pages, and one by one, beginning with the faster readers, the committee members nod their heads and smile at one another with the relieved look of men and women who have just solved a great problem. This godly, faithful man who can't speak is perfect for the role of Joseph in this Christmas pageant, for in the biblical records of Jesus' birth, and in fact in the entire New Testament, not a single word is ascribed to Mary's husband. In Matthew 1.19, we read that Joseph was wrestling with a great dilemma. 
On grounds that are not revealed to us, he has become aware that Mary, to whom he was engaged, was pregnant, and he knew that he was not the father. The law that Joseph had been taught from his childhood up gave him the right to publicly shame her for this conspicuous sin. But on the other hand, probably conscious of the sin in his own life, his sense of fairness, and perhaps his affection for her, prompted him to look for less conspicuous ways to break the covenant that bound them. In all of this turmoil, we never hear Joseph's voice. In the next verse, while Joseph tossed in his sleep, hurt by Mary's seeming betrayal, torn between the remedy offered by the law and the inclination of a gracious character, an angel sent from God spoke to Joseph, explaining what Mary might have tried and seemed so unbelievable as to be beyond understanding, and telling Joseph to proceed with his marriage plans without concern about her character or his reputation. But in all of this, there are no quotation marks between which we find words of Joseph. In Matthew 2.13, Joseph receives a second message from an angel in the night, this time warning him about the insane jealousy of Herod and ordering him to take his wife and her son and flee to Egypt, perhaps using the expensive gifts brought by the Magi. The three of them flee from Bethlehem, at least partially retracing the steps of Jacob, who generations before was driven from the land, not by a mad king, but by a famine. But again, not a word is found on Joseph's lips. Later in that second chapter of the first gospel, Joseph receives two additional messages from an angel of God, directing his return to Nazareth. But in this ancient drama, this character named Joseph has no lines to recite. In Luke 2, we read of one of many journeys that Joseph and the family took from their home in Nazareth to the temple that was in Jerusalem, probably for the celebration of Passover. And there, Jesus, now 12 years old, becomes separated from his parents. When they return to the city, they find him in the temple, amazing the scholars there with the depth of his understanding of the law and the wisdom of his questions. And Mary expresses the concern of both of his parents. She says, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Joseph, who seems to have been as troubled by his absence as Mary, says not a word. After this, the New Testament falls silent about this silent man. There are occasions during the public ministry of Christ when Mary is mentioned, but Joseph is not, leading us naturally to the conclusion that at some point between the 12th and the 30th birthdays of our Lord, this quiet, godly man went to his eternal reward without having spoken a word that is recorded. But in spite of his silence, In spite of the paucity of information given to us about him, there are lessons that we might derive from Joseph's life. One of them is that Joseph was a good man. The Bible makes it clear that the end of faith is not found in dazzling displays of faith. And the intended end of good theology is not found in eloquent expressions of good theology. The purpose of these things is found in transformed lives and in good character. Joseph was a man of excellent character. 
In Matthew 1, we read that he was a just man. Perhaps echoing things that he learned from his father, Jesus would later say, judge not lest you be judged. And James, who grew up under the tutelage of the same man, wrote, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And James wrote, True and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. In Matthew 13, Joseph's fellow citizens of Nazareth refer to him interestingly as the carpenter. Notice the grammar of this quotation. He is not merely a carpenter, but he is the carpenter. This is an accurate translation of the Greek. The word for the is there in the text. In a city the size of Nazareth, it seems likely that there would have been several men who specialized in working with wood, but this particular man stood out among them who referred to him as not one of the carpenters, but as the carpenter. This quiet man had a reputation for fairness, for integrity, and for being a skilled and reliable craftsman. Could we men pray for much better than this for ourselves? The Bible makes it plain that Joseph was not a rich man. We know this from the record of the sacrifice that was offered for Mary's purification 40 days after the birth of her first son. The sacrifice that the law required was of one lamb and one dove, but it made a provision for people who couldn't afford a lamb and they could offer two doves. And you may remember reading that this was the offering that Joseph and Mary brought to the temple, identifying themselves as a poor couple who could afford nothing more. And incidentally, this becomes an important piece of evidence for us to consider when we wrestle with placing in time the visit of the Magi. While it might make an authentic Christmas pageant much longer than we're accustomed to, it seems from the fact that they pled poverty when they went to the temple when Jesus was 40 days old means that these visitors from their east with their lavish gifts had not yet arrived at that point. In this regard, if you and I were making up a story about the birth of a great king who would change the course of history, we would have him born in the midst of public acclaim and in the lap of luxury, where servants and advisors would guide him through his infancy and childhood, preparing him to rule. But in the Bible, God is quoted as having said, your thoughts are not my thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. We're reminded of this when we reflect on the anonymity of the family and the poverty of the home to which the incarnate Son of God was sent. We do well to remember this principle when we consider the circumstances of our own lives and evaluate the values and goals that we establish for ourselves. Joseph was a faithful believer. Sabbath after Sabbath, He sat with his family in the services of the synagogue or one of the synagogues in Nazareth. From his quietness suggested elsewhere, we might safely assume that in those services, while others took time reading from the law and the prophets and then teaching and debating the meaning of what they had just read, Joseph seldom, if ever, expressed an opinion 
or asked a question. He wasn't a part of that elite group of men in the synagogue who participated in those noisy discussions and were widely respected, not for the sweetness of their character or their genuine love for others, but for their impressive knowledge of the language of theology. There might have been some who interpreted Joseph's quietness as religious ignorance or indifference, but we know that neither was the case. And we need to be very careful in our assessments of others in that regard, remembering that the Bible says that while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. For 30 years, the quiet son of the quiet carpenter sat with his quiet family in those services. But then one day, after he'd been away from Nazareth for several weeks, he came home and had the temerity to stand before the proud in the synagogue not only reading the scriptures to them, but claiming to know their meaning. These proud men, uneasy in the presence of his righteous character, and now threatened by the superior clarity of his thought and the boldness of his authority, responded the only way small men know how to respond, and that was with violence and hostility. But the quiet son of the quiet carpenter was silent no more. In Matthew, we find at the very beginning of the gospel, the genealogy of Joseph. Genealogies are so powerful that they've been known to stop Bible readers in their tracks. Young Christians are advised to read through the Bible and they, they start and they come to the fifth chapter of Genesis where they find one of several begat, begat, begat passages, throw up their hands in despair and often abandon the effort. Seasoned believers come upon these genealogies and hastily skip over them to the more interesting parts of the Bible. But when we look at these genealogies very carefully, we sense that they're there for a reason. And our study then becomes driven by our need to know what that reason is. In the case of Joseph and the genealogy that traces his pedigree back to Abraham, we read in the scripture promises that the Messiah who would be a blessing to the world, would be related to Abraham, that he would be of the tribe of Judah, and a son or a male descendant of David. We notice that in the lines of begats that lead us to the name of Joseph, all three of these names appear. The word of God cannot be broken. The word of God will not be broken. In Luke, we read that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, which would place his his family history (laughs) in Bethlehem, which is called the city of David. And in that same gospel, we also read that Mary's close relative, Elizabeth, lived in the hill country of Judea, which would place her very close to Bethlehem as well. The thoughtful Bible reader wonders how it might have happened that Joseph and Mary, whose family roots were in Judea, came to get their mail in Nazareth, far to the north. The answer might be found that in the time of the Maccabean revolt in the second century before Christ, large numbers of Jewish people migrated northward from what we call Judea into what we know as Galilee. This is very likely the answer to our questions about the apparent dislocation of the families of Joseph and Mary. 
And for those of you who are interested, it might also explain how the Apostle John, whom we first meet bending his nets along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, had close ties with the family of the high priest in Jerusalem. Not only does the Bible tell us that God directed the course of history from Abraham to Joseph, but it also says that he shaped Joseph's course through history. Three times, an angel appeared to Joseph, directing the path that his family should take. In the first of these, he was warned about Herod and told to go to Egypt. The second came long after that, while Joseph was in Egypt, telling him that it was safe to go back to the land. And the third, as he approached the land, directing his steps back to Nazareth. Now, remember that, please. And then remember that in Luke, we read that Mary also received an angelic visit and message. But now, after the marriage is legally consummated, the word from God is given not to Mary, not to Joseph and Mary together, but to Joseph alone. Mary was present on all three of these occasions, but God spoke to her husband and not to her. There's a similar event recorded in the book of Genesis. We read of a time in which God sent an angel to Abraham to tell Abraham that his wife Sarah was going to have their long-awaited son, who of course would be Isaac. This conversation took place just outside the family tent. And as the angel and Abraham were talking, Sarah was just inside that tent. But the angel didn't say to Abraham, why don't you call your wife out here? I have good news I'd like to share with the two of you together. Instead, the message was given to Abraham with the understanding that he would pass it on to Sarah. In these two examples, one from the Old Testament and the other from the New, we see clearly God's intended order for marriage and the family. It's a view that is offensive to many in our time, an age in which the rise of feminism has coincided with the erosion of marriage, but this is the word of God. May he who have ears to hear, may she who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Of all the familiar characters in the drama of that first Christmas, Joseph is the only one not to have said a word. Yet this silent man has lessons to teach all who will be taught. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be honored as we learn those lessons and apply them to our lives for his glory. Let us pray. Our Father, by your word, we understand that the history that the Bible reveals is not intended just for our information, for our knowledge of historical trivia, and for our ability to impress others with the things that we know and remember. But rather, it is filled with lessons for your covenant people. And thus, in this Christmas season, as we remember and think about the life and the character and the role in sacred history of Joseph, we pray that your Holy Spirit might graciously call our attention to the lessons that it contains and then prompt within us a desire to learn those lessons, 
that you might be uplifted and glorified and that our joy might be complete. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.